All right, kids ages three to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. Uh, I forgot we had a lot of visitors here this morning. Uh, my name is Rick. I'm the pastor here at Holy Cross, in case that was uh, confusing to you. He's this random dude jumping up saying stuff. Uh, if, if you don't have a Bible with you, or if you do, I, I'd invite you to turn it to the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. You can grab that. If you don't own a Bible, there are several on the back table. That is our gift to you. We'd love for you to have one. Um, when I got back from my sabbatical, there was, there was a note on my desk that I think had either been mailed or dropped off. I mean, Sarah might be able to tell you which was, but there was a note, handwritten note, um, from someone who had come into our services, uh, had, walked, had pre- previously walked away from Jesus and um, had taken us up on that opportunity to grab a Bible and um, now is reconciled to God. Uh, and so she was thanking us for that, and uh, that's, that's why we do it. So those gifts are for you if you want them. Uh, it's good to have the Bible in front of you, though, so especially during this series, so you know I'm not making this up. Uh, we're in the middle of a series called Reconsider, which is an intentional name. If you've been here, you know that I've talked about the fact that there's a rise in Western culture in general, but especially in our country of folks who consider themselves to have no religious affiliation. They're called nuns, N-O-N-E-S's. And my experience has been from conversations with folks who either identify this way or who, um, or if you read the stories of their, you know, quote-unquote deconversion, which you can find. uh, There's plenty of blogs, podcasts, all that stuff that you can find, that they have similar things in common. Uh, One of them is that most are not leaving religion in general. They're leaving Christianity. Okay? And the Christianity that they are leaving um, is not necessarily biblical Christianity. It's some version that they either assumed was true or they had been taught. Right? So they assumed um, certain things about God and Jesus and the faith, and it turns out that there, there's really no basis for any of those. It just seemed logical to them. Or uh, they were taught something that wasn't exactly uh, what biblical Christianity would be. Um, and those things that they were taught or assumed just disturbed them. And let's be honest, there are disturbing things about Christianity. There are. Disturbing things about lots of different things, right? The rather sneaky thing about these stories is that this, become, this, this place in which people find themselves in which they now have no religious affiliation didn't happen one day like a light switch, right? As if they one day were like what in the evangelical world you'd call on fire for Jesus, and then the next day it's like, eh, I don't care. It was more like a dimmer switch, It was a process, which means that if you're here this morning and you would call yourself a nun, you're not of no religious affiliation, you may in fact be on that path. You may not even be aware of it. One day you may end up waking up and thinking, I don't really, I don't think I believe this anymore. So during this series, we've talked about God, we've talked about the Bible. And we've simply asked that we reconsider this week, we look at the most important assertion of the Christian faith. And that is the, resur- the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So if you have your place in 1 Corinthians 15, our habit here is to stand. So if you'd stand, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11. This is God's word to us. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preached, and this is what you believed. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we're probably here in this place for a bunch of reasons and with a bunch of different experiences. And so I pray that as we speak to this this reality, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that you would use that to come in and speak peace to our hearts. That, Lord, we would see this as gospel, whether for the first time or for the first time in the last ten minutes, and that our lives might be oriented appropriately. This is all something only you can do. We can't work up the faith or the uh, ability to do this, and so we pray that you would be at work, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So let me, let me prepare you. This, this sermon is going to be a little more teachy than preachy. Uh, we'll get to the preachy at the end, but uh, we need to be a little teachy at first. And, and why that is, is because what I want to do first is flesh out something a bit more, which I briefly touched on last week, and that's the difference between uh, scientific knowledge and historic knowledge. Okay? Uh, now, before you check out on me, because you're thinking, like, dude, Sunday is not a school day, um, just, just hang with me. This is super important. And in fact, it's, it's actually critical to what's going to come next, all right? Uh, scientific knowledge is based on the notion that the universe is structured and orderly. It's an interesting assumption, is it not? It's an assumption. The only reason that we can come up with anything is we believe the world is structured and orderly and works in a certain way. It's not chaotic. The ancients thought the world was chaotic, uh, it wasn't until the rise of the Christian faith that people thought, no, there's actually order to this thing because there's a God of order who put it together. That's, that's another point. Um, but scientific knowledge is based on the notion that everything is structured and ordered. And thus, if you observe certain things in a controlled environment with controlled variables and you notice certain behaviors, then not only can you explain why those things happen, but you could predict that they will happen again under those same circumstances. Right? Does that make sense? It's experimentation. Now, I know that's a gross oversimplification, and those who are um, scientists in the room will know that's a gross simplification, but we're not all scientists, right? And I didn't do great in biology, maybe you did, uh, but that helps me. Uh, but science is done through experimentation to test theories. History is done differently. Historical knowledge, and this is super important if you're a student, uh, if, if you're learning about stuff in school, whether that's in college or in high school or, or in uh, the lower grades, to understand this difference because a lot of things are going to be presented to you in ways that are different. But historic knowledge is testimony and evidence-based. Right? That we, we gather all of the accounts of a certain event. We gather all of the, um, the evidence going with that event. And then we form a narrative around all of those things that makes the most sense out of the most evidence. Because anybody can come up with a theory based on one piece. Right? So you have people running around saying that the pyramids were built by aliens. 
I mean, if you look at this giant pyramid, you may think, aliens must have built this, it's huge, and weren't ancient people stupid? Until you gather all of the evidence and you realize that the engineering needed was actually invented long before Westerners got involved. And they were able to do it with a lot of slave labor. That's beside the point, right? You gather accounts, you make the most sense of the most evidence. And that is what we're dealing with when it comes to Christianity's assertion that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, many of us rule that out from the start, do we not? Because it's impossible for dead people to get up. And I grant that. Which is why it was written down in the first place. Right? The whole point of its impossibility, or seeming impossibility, is why it's been written down. And so unless we fall into the historical arrogance I talked about last week, we have to acknowledge that is the entire point of the story. This does not happen. First century people thought it was impossible for dead people to get up too. That's why they wrote it down. That's why it made such an impact. And so if we're good historians and they actually investigate what happened, then we have to first take the data and, and come up with a theory that seems to make the most sense out of what we have. Now, the other side of it is we not only need to be asking what happened, but why it mattered. And that's what we're going to do this morning. There's an outline of your bulletin. If that's helpful, we're going to look at what happened, why it mattered. Really simple. Okay? What happened, why it mattered. Let's start with what happened and begin where we would begin with any event. Let's look at the testimony. Now, if you're not a Christian, uh, you're probably calling foul right now. Right? Because we're beginning with the Bible. And you don't accept the Bible. Isn't that skewed? I mean, isn't it vested in what it says? And I would answer, of course. If by vested you mean that the testimony given actually asserts that it's true. But then if that's the case, then all testimony is skewed, right? Because all testimony to some degree is vested in what it is saying to be true. So if we're going to rule that out, we'd have to rule out everything. Because there's no such thing as objective statements, right? But that's why we make historical judgments. We have to test the vestedness of the assertion. So let's, let's get to this text, okay? Look down at verses 3 to 8 in 1 Corinthians 15. This is written by the Apostle Paul. Maybe you know a little bit about him. Um, if you didn't, he's a great person to be talking about this for us. Because uh, Paul was a highly educated uh, Jewish man from a college town in the Mediterranean called Tarsus, uh, which was big on its knowledge and learning. He was also militantly anti-Christian. Notice I didn't say militantly non-Christian. He was anti-Christian. Here's what that means. As a, as a Jewish man trained as a Pharisee, he believed that Christianity, as it rose up, the belief in Jesus as the Messiah, God's long-awaited answer to sin, death, and hell, that this, this uh, person, was, that the belief in this person was actually polluting the Jewish faith and would continue the curse of God upon the Jews unless it was rooted out and destroyed. He wasn't the only Jew who thought this. He was just the one we know the most about. And so he lived that out. He lived out that, that belief by personally jailing and killing other Christians. He jailed the ones he could. He killed the ones that uh, he seemed to be able to get away with. But then something happened. Something happened that changed everything for him. And he went from a killer of Christians to a creator of Christians. It's really bizarre. We'll get to that in a second. And this letter that we call 1 Corinthians, 
It was written to a church in Corinth. It was written somewhere in the mid-50s A.D., probably around 55, which means it's like uh, less than 25 years after the death of Jesus. So uh, this is very important for us to understand. This is very early in the sense of accounts, especially given what he said. Now let's look at what he says. He says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Now stop there. He's saying right here, it seems obvious, but oftentimes the obvious in the Bible is the very thing we miss, that he is passing along something that he was given as well. So we have one group of people who began the story, and, and you're going to see in a minute that they claim to be eyewitnesses to it. Then you have Paul, and then you have the people that he passed it on to. So we're now down to the third generation of those who are believing in this um, in 25 years. Okay? Um, this is important because this is one of the earliest of the New Testament documents, and we are seeing that that what is central to the Christian faith is not necessarily the teaching of Jesus, though that was important, but the event of the resurrection. You got me? Okay. Let's go on. What was of first importance? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is uh, Paul talk for dead. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now let me break this down. Paul is making an argument, but it is not an argument appealing to faith. That's really important for us to understand, because a lot of us have been taught that with Christianity, you check your brain out the door, and you jump into this large pool of unknowing, because that's what faith is. But Paul is saying, no, no, that's not what faith is. He is is dealing with something very different. An event. Facts. He is saying that what is of first importance, in other words, the most important thing is something that happened and that there are corroborating pieces to this story. And he mentions two. So let me mention those really quick. The first of these corroborating evidences is the scriptures. Now, I know that some of us don't find that compelling because we don't believe the scriptures. And I get that. I totally get that. Now, but what we have to understand is that the people that Paul was first speaking to wouldn't have necessarily found them compelling either. Right? Because when he went to Corinth to preach the gospel the first time, there were some Jews there and they accepted the, the Old Testament and he could argue with them from that. But he also had lots of Greeks and Romans and Lots of other people. Corinth was at the middle of a crossroads of, uh, it was a marketplace. And so it was very much like modern Manhattan. This, this giant pot of diverse opinions, beliefs, um, and backgrounds. And, and he spoke all of these things about something being according to the scriptures. So why would he do that? Well, he did that because some random dude coming back from the dead is weird, but it doesn't really mean much. I mean, outside of like, wow, that's neat. But, if the resurrection is born out of the story of God's writing the world, if it's plausible because of that story, then suddenly this random event becomes, uh, it, it explodes with meaning. And so it happened, he says, according to the scriptures, according to the story that the Bible tells. And the second piece of evidence is this multitude of eyewitnesses, people that saw these appearances. Okay, He mentions six 
Let me detail them. The first is Cephas. That's, that's another name for Peter. Peter, uh, some of you will know, was the kind of the, the loud mouth of the apostles, the loud mouth of Jesus' disciples. Always spoke first, thought later. And one of the times in which he did that and got him into trouble is when he denied that he even knew Jesus three times the night of his trial. Right? Interesting person to place in that list. The, the next is uh, the Twelve. The Twelve is a shorthand for the closest followers of Jesus that were left. And so when you spoke of the twelve, it's a technical term for that circle of men that that Jesus kept around him during the three years of ministry. Um, Now, of course, in a very technical sense, there weren't twelve at the time. Because he'd already mentioned Peter. Peter was off somewhere else. And Judas, well, most of you all know what happened to Judas, right? Tragic. Betrayed Jesus, committed suicide. Okay? Not on the team anymore. Then he mentions 500 guys at the same time. Now, that's really difficult to believe, isn't it? I mean, I think most of us can go, yeah, I kind of get, Peter shows up and says, I had this experience of the risen Jesus. You go, oh, isn't that great? But 500 guys at one time? I mean, what was that? I think most of us have this image of this, like, shining man in the sky, like, look at me, Jesus, you know? But that is why Paul tells you that during the time that he's writing this, most of these guys are still alive. He's inviting fact-checking. He's inviting it. Go go find them. Most of them are still around. Then he mentions James. James is Jesus' younger half-brother. Let me ask you something. Some of you all have older siblings. What would it take for you to believe that your older sibling, brother, I don't know, maybe sister, but older sibling, because you know how that is. Why can't you be more like your brother? What would it take for you to believe that they're God. A lot, right? It did for James, too, because he didn't believe a lick of it before Jesus was resurrected. Not a lick of it. He thought he was crazy, and we're told that in the Gospels. He thought he was crazy. And then he didn't think so anymore. Probably because, like Paul says, the risen Christ appeared to him. And then um, we're told that all the apostles together, that would be Peter plus the remainder of the 12. And then he mentions himself. Now, this is important. So check back in if you've already checked out. Paul is mentioning eyewitnesses for two reasons. First, like we all already agreed to, dead people don't get up. They didn't in the first century, and they don't now. If you're going to make this claim that a dead man got up, you better be able to back it up. And he's doing that. And in in fact, he's saying that he's not afraid of you fact-checking him. He's, He's certain he will not be contradicted, right? The second reason that he's mentioning all these witnesses is that the Jewish faith is obsessed with with. Uh, witnesses to corroborate testimony, okay? Obsessed with something that uh, theologian Leslie Newbegin calls public truth. Public truth is the opposite of private religious experience, right? Private religious experience, highly subjective. Many of us were taught that that's exactly what Christian faith is. It's some kind of warm fuzzy with God, but Paul is pointing to public truth, something that can be fact-checked, something that happened in space-time. You can go and look at and see or talk to those that did, The Jewish faith is obsessed with this. It's constantly talking about the need for two or three witnesses, whether that's to to affirm a prophecy, to affirm uh, legal matters, or to affirm something else that happened. Everything needs two or three witnesses, which is to say that Christianity is is based on faith not in a private religious experience, but in public truth. 
The claim that is being made is that Jesus died, was dead, like dead, dead. That he was dead for several days. That he rose again. And that this claim makes sense because of the story of the Bible. That it was a public event that was witnessed by over 500 people who can fact check Paul. Okay, That is the claim. Now, I'm not asking you to believe that claim right now. I'm just telling you that is the claim as we have to deal with it. All right? And so if you're not a Christian this morning, or if you're heading down that road, uh, the road towards being a nun, the seeming impossibility of the resurrection is, or if the seeming impossibility of the resurrection is why, then you're probably right now running through your mind of all the alternatives, right? There have to be alternatives because dead people don't get up. And you're right, there are alternatives. But like all historical knowledge, we have to judge those alternatives to see if they make the most, most sense out of the most data, Okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about some of those alternatives right now and then speak to their plausibility. Now, before you cry foul on the fact that I'm going to speak to the alternatives plausibility, and I haven't spoken to the plausibility of what Paul said, let me just say that I'm pretty sure we can all agree on the improbability of a dead man getting up, right? I don't think I have to try and poke holes in that. I think that's kind of self-evident to us. Maybe these others aren't. So... There are tons of alternatives that you can go and read about, some new theory that someone's coming up with, but they all fall under two, I think, two basic headings. The first uh, is simply that what we mean by resurrection, or what evangelical American Christians in the 20th century have meant by resurrection, and what they meant in the first century were very different. That's one of the alternatives. And this has been put out by many who want to hold on to some semblance of Christianity while also denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Okay? Um, So let me say this. The Jewish faith into which Christianity sprang had a very well-defined understanding of resurrection. Okay? You heard some of that from Brandon this morning as he was reading from Job. The idea of resurrection was central. They, they understood. And what they meant by resurrection was not some form of resuscitation, right? Resuscitation is when somebody gets out the paddles and you shock them and they come back, right? As if they just passed out. Uh, it's not zombie Jesus, like Jesus came back with, and trying to, trying to work with these guys, or eat their brains at least. Um, and it was not Jesus goes to heaven when he dies. That's not a resurrection, Resurrection was bodily and understood that way. Dead meant dead. And every gospel writer is clear on the fact, every one of them, clear on the fact that the death of Jesus was verified by a Roman centurion whose only job was to kill people. He knew what dead was. And he, we don't, we're not just told that like something happened, he walked by them, but in fact that he went and told someone else Hey, I went to go break his legs. Dude was already dead. I poked him in the side just to be sure. Blood and water came out. Dead. He's dead. No life in that one. So resurrection meant resurrection. And every writer is clear that though Jesus had scars when he was raised in his hands and his feet and his side, he was also changed in substantial ways. Okay? So that's, that's the first thing that, that maybe they meant something different than we mean. No, no in fact, they didn't. Uh, but second of those kind of that goes along with this line is that what, what they experienced by resurrection was really more of like a, a warm fuzzy, like, like what we hear in, in movies all the time, that when people die, they're always with you. Which, 
is kind of a lie, right? That's, that's why we cry and should cry when people die because they aren't with us. You can't talk to them anymore. Or maybe it wasn't just a warm fuzzy that everything's going to be okay in the end. Maybe, it's, maybe it was a, a mass hallucination, right? Now, think with me again. In the Jewish worldview, again, this is the worldview in which Christianity sprang. Resurrection was the reversal of death. It was not the existential idea that everything's going to turn out okay in the end. That's ridiculous. Simply the idea that we got a warm fuzzy that Jesus will be with us always wasn't, wouldn't make sense to the first people who believed. And on the point of mass hallucination... And I know we're grasping at straws to try and find something that makes more sense out of the resurrection than this. But can we, can we just say that hallucination on that scale with that many people in that many different places all having the same kind of experience, including one of them who was convinced that Jesus was a fraud and sought to kill those who thought otherwise. That's a little outlandish, right? Just a, a little bit. So that's the first alternative, that they were well-meaning, right? The first alternative is the apostles were well-meaning, but wrong. The second alternative is that they weren't well-meaning at all. In fact, they were rather malevolent and lied, right? And so this is, we have different ways of talking about this too, but it, I think this is the easiest one for us to imagine. And, and, and so this goes along the lines of the disciples after seeing this potential power for themselves in the inner circle of this new king, decided what we're going to do, he died, that's unfortunate, but what we're going to do is we're going to keep this up, we'll steal the body, and then we're just going to proclaim to everyone this new truth. Let me just break down this argument a little. First, if the apostles made this up, these guys are terrible of convincing anyone of anything. Here's why we know that. All of the Gospels, but especially if you were to read Mark's Gospel, okay, which apparently came from the testimony of Peter himself, primarily. If, if you were to read Mark's Gospel, what you'd find is that Jesus' 12 closest friends and followers were idiots. That's what you would find over and over and over again. They don't get it. They're constantly oblivious to what's happening, and they look foolish the entire way through the Gospel. And so if you're starting a power grab and you think, I want everyone to follow everything I say, why would you present yourself to be an imbecile? Secondly, though, they, they, if they were making it up, they chose the wrong people to be the first witnesses. Right? So in our culture, what Brandon read from the Gospel of Luke doesn't make a whole lot of sense, or, or we seem to just kind of gloss over it as it's like normal, the fact that in every Gospel, the first people that that were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women. And we go, so what? What's the big deal? Well, let me tell you what the big deal is. These things we call human rights, that we think are the high point of secular achievement, they did not exist before Christianity. Before Christianity existed, if you were a slave, if you were poor, if you were a woman, you were a second-class citizen at best, at best, and that it wasn't until uh, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus and the movement of the church that you began to see things like, hey, owning people is wrong in Philemon. 
They began to see things like, hey, women have equal dignity to men. There is now no male or female. Huh, that's different. There's also no difference between Jew and Gentile. Guess what? Racially, we're all the same. It's not a secular achievement, friends. Outside of the gospel, there is no basis for that. But if, if they're making things up, they picked really poor first witnesses. And Luke even speaks to this, right? Brandon read it. They, they hear the women. The women come in. They tell us, they, wow, that sounds crazy. And then none of them believe them. Not a single one. Maybe Peter. Maybe Peter and John who ended up running down there to see. But they didn't believe them. They were like, okay, I'll go check this. And they left. If you're going to pick the first witnesses for something, wouldn't you pick people? To write about who would actually be believed by the ones that you're trying to tell? Maybe. And if you're creating a story about an event that you want people to take seriously, can I tell you, you've already shot yourself in the foot by putting two bases for that. Both sightings and an empty tomb. If you did just sightings, that's, you can't really fact check that, that's pretty pretty hard to fact check. Uh, or or if, you're, if you're doing an empty tomb, a bunch of things could, could have happened. When you're doing both, you invite people to debunk you. And the very thing we have no accounts of in the ancient world is anyone going, hey, body. Or hey, y'all are always drunk. We don't take you seriously. We have none of that. Now the second issue with this idea that they made it up is, is the issue of whether this would make sense. To say that you made up an event and you expected people to believe it means that there's enough plausibility structures in place that it's not so surprising to you as would make you just go, just reject it out of hand, right? And so what we're dealing with here is a couple things that totally blow that out of the water. First is, dead guy gets up on Sunday, okay? That first and foremost, not very plausible. Uh, Second thing is that even Jewish people who expected a resurrection never expected the Christ, God's king of all the universe, to suffer and die on a Roman cross, which is why he was mocked, right? All the accounts give it. You're the Christ. Come down off the cross and we'll believe. Why? Because the Christ doesn't die. It's why, it's why, uh, it's why Muslims can't believe that Jesus was the Christ or can't believe that he died. One of the two. Because it couldn't be both. The resurrection was expected, but not that one dude would be raised in anticipation of the whole creation. So Paul and other Christian leaders were laughed all over the place for declaring what they were declaring, and of course they were. It sounded ridiculous. And I've told this to you before, because it's a great thing that one scholar says, Paul enters the city and he says, I've got great news. There's a new king of all the universe. And I was like, really, Who? He's a crucified Jew. It's like, okay. And they all leave. Like, and that's what happened over and over and over again. See, we tend to project our situation back in time and claim, oh, they made this up because they were seeking power. Okay, let me, let me remind you. If you've ever looked at the history of the church for the first three centuries, what power exactly were they getting from this? You have a group of men and women who were tortured. They had their property stolen. They were ostracized in their communities. They went around sometimes uh, half naked. They, 
They were poor. And in the end, most of them died. What? Remind me again. What, what power did they get from this? See, even the guy who wrote this, Paul himself, says very clearly, I've been beaten, flogged, shipwrecked, hung out to dry, abandoned by my friends, and in the end, he was beheaded. Man, did he pick the wrong lie. If we're going to try and claim that something else makes more sense, we have to at least put it under the same scrutiny that we put the seeming impossibility of a dead man rising. Right? So, something happened. I think we can all come to agreement that something weird happened, but so what? And so what I, what I, what I want to do is, if you're using your outline, we're actually going to cover why we care about this historically before spiritually, and it's right up here, but, or will be in a second when, when the slide gets moved, but, but, um, but it was, we didn't have time to switch it around in your outline. So I want to deal with why we care historically first. And here's why. Why we care about this historically is because the resurrection answers the question for us, why does Christianity even exist? Why does it even exist? See, it isn't that Christians don't see possible alternatives to what the Bible says. It's that they don't make sense. Those alternatives don't seem to make sense of all the data, including what happened in the years after. To disbelieve in the resurrection, you have to come up with an alternative that makes sense out of the fact that this movement began, to, began its, at all and then spread. Because first century Judea had plenty of guys who stood up and claimed to be Messiah. And all of them were killed by Rome. And none of their first followers thought the next logical thing to do is to go proclaim to all the world that he's the resurrected king of the universe who is God's long-awaited answer to sin, death, and hell. No, No one ever thought, here's a good idea. Most of them thought, run for the hills before they do the same to us. But not only that, you have to explain how a group of people had such a radical and sudden shift in worldview. Now look, most of us, if if, if you're an adult in the room, you've probably at some point in your life had some kind of shift in the way you see the world, right? And most of us know that this generally happens over time. A great hotbed for that is when we're in college. It takes some time for us to change. We learn new ways of seeing things. But, and I hate to break it to you, more than likely by the time you hit my age, I'm going to turn 40 this year. That has already shifted away from that, and you're beginning to see things a little differently already. But it takes time. But what we have in this is dramatic and sudden. That a guy who's on the road, literally self-professed, I was on the way to a city to kill who I could and jail who I couldn't who believed in this, suddenly changed his tune on the road, got there, and then started proclaiming in the same city... The guy's the king of the universe. That seems a little weird. And he's not the only one. You see, we we tend to think some of these things are normal, but they weren't. You had people who suddenly said, hey, humility, great idea. Generosity, let's do that. Sexual ethics, good for you. Let's Let's all practice these things in a world which humility was not a virtue but a vice. 
generosity was crazy. And the one, critique, one of the critiquers, uh, early Roman critiquers of Christianity, said this in all seriousness about Christians, and it was meant to be a complete and total slam dunk. They are generous with their money and stingy with their wives. Because that was not normal. We think, oh, these are just normal things. No, they are only normal because we have lived in a world that has now been impacted by the gospel and we're kind of insular. We don't go to other places in the world where these things aren't normal, right? In short, you have to explain change live from lots of different cultural and socioeconomic contexts. That is to say, it's one thing to say you had a group of ragged poor people who decided the the meek of the earth, the humble of the earth shall inherit it. And that sounds like a triumph march. But then you have to explain why there were rich people in that group of people. And, in fact, people from Caesar's own household who had everything to lose by saying that. Does it make sense of all the data You can't simply say, nuh-uh, okay? We're not in third grade anymore. Well, some of us are. Not all of us. So that's why we care historically. Why do we care spiritually, though? Paul speaks to that here. In short, the resurrection of Jesus is the central tenet of the Christian faith. Look what he says. Look down at verses 1 and 2. He says, let me remind you of the gospel. In other words, here's what is most central. So what's of first importance? It says, that which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word preached to you, unless, of course, you believed in something that was vain. And what he is saying is that if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, listen to me, because I think we want to try and play both sides. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then Christian faith is vain, it is futile. It is pointless. It is pointless. And the reason of that is because of where it fits. And I say that because I think we tend to believe that the resurrection is one of two things. It is either another example of a miracle, or it's simply evidence that Jesus is God. Right? Now, it's nothing less than that. I mean, it is a miracle. In fact, it's the miracle. Right? There's nothing better than that. You get to turn death backwards That's great, okay? It's also, is it evidence that Jesus is God? Well, what I would say is this. No. Oh, what? Not in and of itself. But when a dude spends three years talking about the fact that I and the Father are one. Hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, All these things are going to happen. And he predicts it and it happens. You believe everything else he says, right? But the resurrection isn't just as if God is showing off that he can do it. The resurrection of Jesus is the gospel. It is the gospel. Because you see, in the story that the Bible tells, that it says this is the true story of the world, death is not natural. We've been taught that. Yoda taught it to us, right? Yoda said, death, don't worry about it. We're luminous beings, right? He taught us that. Uh, but death is not natural. It's not a natural part of life. It's a consequence. It's a curse, It's a sign that the world is wrong. We were created for life. We were created for life with God. 
But we betrayed God when we doubted his good heart towards us. And that betrayal, that turning away from God, what the Bible calls sin, that relational break with him, whether you do that through your religion and your moral uh, fortitude, trying to do good things on your own, or whether you do that through irreligion and going, I'm just going to do my own thing because God's not enough for me. Either way, you break relationship with him, you turn away, the Bible calls that sin. Okay? And the consequence for that is, it, well, it, it brings guilt Death is part of that. Hell is another part. But death exists because of the betrayal. What the Bible calls sin. And so the assertion of the New Testament is that Jesus is God's answer for our sin. He is the one who will make the world right. It's, it's been knocked off kilter by us. He will rewrite it. And he did that Even this passage says, because he lived without sin, but then took our place. Verse 3 says that he died for our sins. In the original Greek, that that word we translate for is a little too too vague in English. What it means is in place of, on behalf of, our sins. He died to bear the guilt that we deserved. And so if Jesus stayed dead, then what we have is a tragedy. No different than any other tragedy. In the first century, it was littered with tragedies. The Romans used to line streets with crucified people to make a point that they're bigger and stronger than you. If Jesus stayed dead, he's just another one of the lined streets. But, if not, if he rose, then sin has been dealt with because death comes because of sin. And so if death has reversed, it's because the penalty of sin is gone. Listen, because, and I talk about this all the time. I talk about why Christianity stands out amongst religious options. This story, what I just said, only makes sense within Christianity. Because no other religion cares much about what happened to their founder. Right? No one really cares when Muhammad died. Or why, or what the circumstances were. It didn't matter. No one really cares when Buddha died. Uh, He kind of ascended. It's weird. Different Buddhisms say different things. Uh, no one really cares when Zoroaster died, right? Like, no one, who, right? Most of you are like, I don't even know who that is. Uh, good for you. No one cares about that. Because what matters are the rules and rituals that you keep. But not in Christianity. In Christianity, our problem isn't our behavior. So rules and rituals can't fix the problem. Our problem is independence. And this is why Paul says that what he is declaring to you, the resurrection, is the gospel. And that we are being saved through this. Because Jesus rescues us. Not us getting to him, him rescuing us. And if that didn't happen, not only does Christianity matter, not matter, that is. It's impossible to keep. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, good luck. Good luck. Tells the rich young ruler, "Um, you know the commandments, keep them. He says, I've done this since I was a youth. Which is crazy, because they call him a rich young ruler. So I'm thinking, it's like, how long is that since your youth? I'm wondering. And, and Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell everything you own, come follow me. Anyone up for that, by the way? No? No takers? We can pass the offering again. Be more than willing. Right? Of course not. Jesus rescues us. 
But if it did happen, if the resurrection did happen, then like the first Christians, friends, our whole life has to be recalibrated around it. From how we view the world, because what it says to us is that our situation is really worse than it seemed and that we can't make it better. It needs a dramatic invasion by God to come and fix it. But also it needs to affect how we spend our money, how we talk to other people, how we view people from other backgrounds, how we understand our bodies, everything. But listen, maybe you're here and you're just apathetic of this whole thing. You're like, I, honestly, Rick, I don't, I don't really care whether Jesus was rose from the dead or not. If that's you, let me speak to you for just a second. Whether or not the resurrection is true, can I argue with you that you should want it to be true? You're like, why should I want it to be true? Namely this. If the resurrection is true, then there is a God who sees you for exactly who you are, sees the world for exactly as it is, comes to you and tells you the truth about yourself, but doesn't do so to destroy you. He comes to tell you the truth to rescue you, to love you until it costs him, not a little, but everything. Comes to set things right so that you can be restored to what you were made for. Who seeks us while we were enemies. Who cares about justice. If that is true, and we should want it to be, then I think it's something worth reconsidering. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we come uh, in different places in terms of reconsidering. Some of us heartily believe in your bodily resurrection, but our lives don't reflect it. We are far more, uh, far more people who can be carried by the whims of, of political ideologies or, or, um, or uh, the, what's, how our lives are going in the circumstances of the moment instead of being shaped by the death of death in the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we need, we need you to come to reorient our lives, even now, that this is not only true, but it matters. Others of us, though, Lord, we, we, we struggle with this. Some of us, it's been what's disturbed us, the idea that someone would take our place. It seems unjust until we realize that it's not some random scapegoat, but it's you taking in our place, the just punishment for our sin. And then you were raised to conquer the greatest enemy we could ever face in our death. And so we, I pray that you would work that faith in us. You would give us grace to reconsider this. We, we don't, can't do that on our own. We need you to work. And so we pray you would and propel us into worship, both at the table and in song, as we finish our worship in Jesus' name. Amen.